But let's now go to Psalm 102. This is a psalm where we can learn much from, I think. It is a beautiful prayer. It is a beautiful psalm. Uh, just a couple of things. First of all, it is an anonymous psalm. So many of the psalms are ascribed to David or we're told who the author is. This is one of those psalms. We don't know who wrote it. Some commentators think that it was actually a king, whether it was David or another king, probably a king later than David if it was, um, but they think it was a king speaking on behalf, kind of as a representative of the people. Because it does, as we'll see in a moment, it goes back and forth between uh, the individual, the personal. It seems like a personal prayer to God. And then it goes to this kind of collective, communal discussion uh, between the prayer, the, the individual and God. And so is this a king that's actually personifying the needs of his nation? That's possible. Or it could just be an individual that is uttering this prayer, and that might have some interesting implications, as we'll see. We don't know when this psalm was written. There's no time frame given. There's nothing really given that can help us. The only thing that's given is the state of affairs in Jerusalem, and it seems that Jerusalem, according to the prayer, is in need of saving. It is in need of rebuilding in some ways, and so if that's literal, not just figurative language, which is possible, then it would appear this may have been written sometime during the Babylonian exile. We can certainly imagine Israelites, Jewish people being distraught, being anxious, being stressed, being depressed during their time in foreign captivity. And so that is very possible. But the way the psalm is structured, with no author, with no reference, without a lot of details, there are a lot of details, and then there are a lot of details that we don't have, it actually makes it a very applicable psalm, I think. Now, that's structured in three sections, and you may have noticed this when, when we were reading, it kind of went back and forth in a few things. In the first 11 verses, we have the complaint. We have the, the psalmist describing their situation. Now, they don't give us all the reasons why. They're just describing how they're feeling. And this is the section where we can see this is a person who, if, if, if there's someone that's stressed, that's anxious, that's depressed, it's this individual. They have almost all of the hallmarks of someone that is suffering from a severe depression. And we'll see those in just a moment. Then verses 12 through 22 take kind of a shocking turn. As the psalmist has poured out his complaint, his worries, his problems, in verse 12 all of a sudden it shifts focus and he begins talking about God and he begins talking about Zion, about Jerusalem, and about God's people collectively. And so this personal uh, individual complaint all of a sudden becomes a contemplation about God and his people, not just the individual. And then in verses 23 through 28, it shifts back again to the individual very briefly, but that shift back to the request that we'll see there in verse uh, 24 launches him into another contemplation about God and God's eternity. Now, there are some commentators that because these are so different in some ways, actually believe that these were three different psalms that were written at three different time periods. And then at some point, they were put together uh, as a collective psalm. I don't think you can prove that. I tend to think that this was one psalm, that this it all goes together. But even if it wasn't, even if it was three different psalms and some inspired editor and compiler put them together, they were put together for a reason, that they can go together, that they are one, that they are a unity 
that answers a very important problem that almost all people face in some way and at some time. And so that's the structure of the psalm. Uh, I like to use alliteration when I can. And so if I were to just give one word to each of these three sections, I would title them despair, deliverance, and destiny. And so if that helps you remember these three sections, then I hope that that is helpful to you. So let's launch into the psalm itself. First of all, the psalm bears a title or an inscription. And in psalms, now, a lot of times Bibles have little headings where individuals or groups that have put together like the New King James or the ESV, they'll try and give us a help by giving in bold letters a description of that paragraph or that passage. And those, those headings are not inspired. They're, they're just summaries that men have come up with, much like chapters and verse numbers. But in the psalms, now, there are some of those too, but many of the Psalms bear an inscription and a title, and they are part of the biblical text, and they are as inspired, I believe, as the text is. And so these titles help us uh, understand the Psalm. And the title, the inscription to Psalm 102, says, A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint to the Lord. Now, Again, we don't know exactly who wrote this or when he wrote this. Maybe it was during captivity, hence uh, the reference to the Lord in Zion. That, that could be. Uh, it could be a king. It could be an individual. But the key is, it is a prayer and it is of an afflicted person. Now that makes this somewhat unique. Uh, the book of Psalms, we typically think of the Psalms in conjunction with songs. And many of the Psalms were. That's what they were. I've heard some commentators uh, and Bible scholars refer to Psalms as the songbook of Israel. Much like we have songbooks that have hymns and spiritual songs that we sing and praise to God. That's what the Psalms were ultimately for the Jewish people. They were com compilations of songs that were written by David and Moses and others. Some um, anonymous. And they were used in their worship and their praise of God. And that's what most of the Psalms are. But many of those Psalms are also prayers. And this one is specifically mentioned as a prayer. Now, the fact that it ends up in Psalms means that it was something that was used for the people. It was put in Psalms by inspiration uh, because it would be helpful to others. And so what does this teach us? This is a psalm that teaches us how to pray. It's a psalm that helps us when we're in a certain type of situation, when we're facing affliction, how we can think and how we can pray. And so as I mentioned, as it says there in the inscription, this is a prayer, not just a general prayer. This is not the prayer of one who is rejoicing. This is not the prayer of one who is on cloud nine. This is a prayer of one afflicted. Someone who is so afflicted that he seems that he is about to faint. He is pouring out his complaint, his soul to the Lord. Now, there's, not, there's enough there, but there's not a lot of detail. So how is the, is the psalmist afflicted? Is this physical affliction? Is it emotional affliction? Is it spiritual affliction? He doesn't really say. And in the descriptions that we'll, that we'll look at again in verses 1 through 11, uh, those could be, some of them could be taken literally, or they could also be taken figuratively. And so it could be physical affliction that they're suffering. Or it could be figurative, and it could be emotional, or mental, or spiritual affliction that they're suffering. So, so which is it? We don't know. And we don't need to know. Because actually, in 
the ambiguity, there is a great deal of applicability. You see, in the fact that he doesn't say the prayer of one who is suffering from cancer, he just says a prayer of one afflicted. It's a prayer of someone who is sick. Or it's a prayer of someone who's persecuted. Or it's a prayer of someone who's broken hearted. Or it's a prayer of someone who feels guilty. See we aren't told specifically the affliction. And we're not told why the affliction. Whether it's sickness or a persecution or injury. Or the guilt of sin. There's some hints here and there of what it might be. But nothing specific. And what this does is first of all it adds an air of authenticity to this this prayer. This was not a prayer that someone came up with because they thought this would be helpful to teach people how to pray when they're afflicted. There was a time and a place I fully believe where an individual prayed this prayer because they were afflicted and they poured out their heart and mind to God in their affliction. They were aided in that prayer. It was an inspired prayer whether they understood it fully or not at the time. But it was an inspired prayer that would go on to help God's people. But because it was a personal prayer, the psalmist, the prayer, didn't have to give all the details. They didn't have to explain to God every nitty gritty detail about how they're afflicted and why. God knows. They're speaking to the God who knows. And so they're pouring out their complaint, their worries, their, their, their trials. But they don't have to give all the background information. That's not how they pray to God. And so there's, authentic, there's authenticity here. But in the beauty of that, and that God inspired this prayer this way, it again becomes applicable to all of us. Whatever your affliction, it may not be, probably isn't the exact same affliction as the psalmist thousands of years ago in a land far away. And yet his prayer can be your prayer and help you in your times of affliction as well. So let's look at the first section, the section that details the despair of this individual. Now, first of all, we have a request, and the request is very unique here in Psalm 102 because, well, let's just read the first two verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me, answer me speedily in the day when I call. Now, that's the end of the request all the way until verse 24. Down in verse 24, we finally get something specific when he says, Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. The only specific request after the opening two verses is to not be taken away. The psalmist is praying that he does not die early. But that's the only request, and that comes much later in the psalm. The primary request is simply for God to hear and to answer. But then there's never a really specific request in the psalm. So what is it that God's answering? Again, there is an element of trust and faith in this prayer. But the request is to be heard by God. Surely we can all identify with that sentiment. Have you ever been distraught, stressed, anxious, awake in the middle of the night? And you just wanted to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God heard you? Have you ever been so overwhelmed that that little doubt began to creep into your mind? Is he there? 
Is he listening? I think the psalmist feels that a bit. And thus his primary plea. Above all of his affliction. Above all of his pain and suffering. Is hear me. Hear my plea. And please answer quickly. And that may seem like a bold prayer. And it is a bold prayer. But I think we'll see over the course of the psalm. It's also a trusting prayer by this individual. But they go through the next several verses, from verses 3 through 11, explaining their condition. And when we look at this condition, I think we see a miserable, miserable person. First of all, they have something you might call transience. That is, transience is, is fleeting. It's something that's quickly passing away. And that's how they feel. They say in verse 3, for my days pass away like smoke. He mentions the smoke metaphor again a little later. The idea is he feels like his days are fleeting. Like they're useless. Like they're pointless. Like they're here. Just like smoke from a fire or steam from a boiling pot. How long does it last? James uses this as a metaphor for our life. So the thing is it's true. But that's kind of depressing when you think about it, isn't it? What is your life? It's a vapor. And if you stop and you think about that for very long, apart from an eternal perspective, that is a crushing burden. Whatever you do, whatever you accomplish, whatever you experience, it's just a brief microscopic moment. In the greater scheme of this world and this universe, that really doesn't mean a whole lot. That's a crushing feeling. And that's what the psalmist is, is describing. His days are fleeting. They are passing away. They are quickly going. He also feels pain. He says that um, my bones burn like a furnace. Now that could be a figurative description of a literal condition. He may be describing a fever. He may be describing inflammation. Or he may be describing a mental state. Kind of like. Jeremiah when he said that he tried to hold back from preaching the word of God but it was in his bones like a raging fire and he could not. I don't think that Jeremiah actually got a literal fever because he was not speaking God's word but it was something that consumed him that tormented him to hold back God's word. Well the psalmist is saying he feels that type of pain. When someone's depressed even if it's a, a mental situation it can often have physical side effects. It can Stress can affect the body in difficult and terrible ways. And perhaps you've felt that before. Perhaps you've been dealing with some situation or you've been in a state of, of stress or depression and it just, you felt awful. Maybe, maybe this makes sense to you. You almost felt like you were burning up from the inside out and you couldn't help it. That's how this psalmist feels. He feels emptiness. He says, my heart is struck down like grass and has withered. That's a sad depiction of a human being. The heart, the emotions, the drives, the motivations. He says, it's like grass that's been left out in the sun without rain and it's dried up. Have you ever felt empty? Have you ever had such a tough week at work that was made more difficult by some relationship problem 
that was compounded even further by maybe some of your own poor choices that you felt guilty about, that was compounded further by some bill that was due, and everything just began to crush in on you, and at the end of the week, you just felt empty. You felt like there was nothing left. You didn't even have the desire to try to do anything about it. That's how people that are in depression often feel withered up. Psalmist says that's his situation. He even describes a loss of appetite. He says, I forget to eat my bread. Whether that's because he is so distraught that he literally forgets to eat. People have gone through that. Some of us have never suffered from that problem and it shows. Some people have and it can be very serious. They become so stressed, so anxious and maybe you've suffered from this. They can't eat. They don't even think about eating. And so their, their skin begins to cling to their bones as the psalmist describes. Such a stressful, painful situation. Even the essentials of life are foregone or forgotten. He's lonely. Notice how he describes himself. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness. Like an owl of the waste places. Later he says, I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Why is he picking owls and sparrows? And commentators, um, Hebrew scholars, kind of aren't sure exactly what the birds are. But they're sure that they're, they're described as night birds. Birds that are awake in the dead of midnight, like this individual, as we'll see in a moment. They're lonely. They're in the waste places. That's one of the most difficult feelings to handle. Loneliness. Have you ever felt lonely? Most of us have at some time, some place, for some reason. That's a depressing feeling. How do you overcome loneliness? We'll continue to see what he does. He's sleepless. As he's in this lonely state, he can't even find the solace of rest. He says, I lie awake. You ever had that happen to you? Try and you try and you try and you just can't fall asleep. Another hallmark of depression, stress, anxiety. He's tormented by others. He says that he, he speaks of enemies. He says, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. It's not clear whether this man is persecuted or just mistreated. Both of those things happen in life, a part of the loneliness. And perhaps there's also an element of guilt. Notice in verse 10, he says, Because of your indignation and anger, you have taken me up and thrown me down. Now, this is a difficult part. Some, there are some who have tried classifying the Psalms, and some classify this as one of the penitential Psalms. There are psalms, such as the, some written by David, that are clearly a confession, a, a form of repentance. And some classify Psalm 102 as that because it bears some similarities to those others, including verse 10. The problem is he never actually confesses what it is. And so it's not clear whether the psalmist believes that God has struck him down as punishment for a sin, or whether, like Job, he just feels that he is bearing the wrath of God but doesn't understand why. It could be either one. But that being said, sometimes we feel this way. 
And we get in terrible states of mind. Because of sin. And don't get me wrong. I've, I had to do this in my other lessons. I feel like I have to clarify a lot. I'm not saying that if you're stressed out. It's because you're sinning. I'm not saying if you're struggling with depression. It's because you're a terrible sinner. I'm not saying that. But it is a possibility. And we have to be very honest with ourselves. If we're going through a dark moment. Why? You think David was depressed. When he lost his. Son. His newborn son. I bet he was. Sure he was. Why did that happen? When David writes. I believe it's Psalm 52. It's Psalm 51 or 52. You can go check. Which is one of the penitential psalms. That's his confession. After he's been confronted by Nathan. You'll find out that depression went back much further than the death of his son. He had been feeling these things. Why? Because he had committed adultery. Because he had lied. Because he had committed murder. Because he had sinned against his God. And when we are acting contrary to God's will. And we know it. And we persist in it. This is probably what's going to happen. Unless we get to the point where our hearts are so hardened. That we don't care. And that's an even scarier situation. So this person may be confessing to God. Or they may just be simply suffering. Again we don't know. But I did read this. And I thought this was a beautiful statement. Summary of these first 11 verses. One commentator said. Unexplained suffering doesn't mean meaningless suffering. The psalmist doesn't have all the answers, but at least he's talking to God. He's not turning from God. He's turning to God. This is a pretty abysmal description that we've read so far in the first 11 verses. But here's the first lesson. Where is he going? He's going to God. Whether it's in repentance or whether it's just seeking God's solace. He's going to God. Too many people. When they truly suffer. Turn away from God. Their anxiety. Their stress. Their depression. Their loss. Their hurt. It drives them away from God. Those are the times that we need to draw even closer to God. Well. After he has given this explanation, he goes on. And we won't read these. We've already read these verses. But verses 12 through 22 take a sharp change. There is a large change in focus. First of all, the focus changes from the individual to God. Notice the first line of verse 12. But you, O Lord. This, the psalmist has just spent about eight or nine verses detailing all of the ways he feels miserable and terrible and dejected. Now we may think that's a bad idea. And a lot of times it is. Because what that turns into is a pity party. But the psalmist shows us how to evaluate our pains that are very real. In the right way. He doesn't just go through this list and say poor pitiful me. As he thinks about himself and his problems, 
his mind ultimately begins to think about God. And isn't that amazing? The individual whose first request was God, listen to me. God, hear me. God, answer me. I want God to answer me. But then he goes for just a little while and now he begins thinking about God. And it changes his entire outlook. That's a difficult but an important principle. Now, God should be the center of our lives. We love him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. But especially when we're going through trials and difficult periods, periods of depression, periods of stress, it's easy to begin focusing on self, as the psalmist did. And part of that's okay. But ultimately, it needs us to lead us to think about God. Who he is. What he's done. What he's promised. What he's doing. I think that we'll find tremendous help. And comfort. Just in that. But also there's a change in focus. Because the the shift. Is from the personal. Towards the community. This. The psalmist has been describing a very intense. Personal problem. His pain. His suffering. His heartache. But as he begins to reflect on God, and what that causes him to do is reflect on God's nature, which is to deliver his people, he does not think solely about himself and just his needs. He begins talking about Zion. Notice he says, you will arise. There's confidence there, by the way. You will arise and have pity On me. It's not what he says. You will have pity on Zion. It's a a title for Jerusalem. It is the time to favor her. This is why many commentators think. And very likely it's true. That this is the prayer of someone who is suffering in exile. Suffering in captivity. If that's the case. Then why this prayer? It's a beautiful reason. Because the individual's hope. Is not just in personal satisfaction and relief. But in the relief of God's people. A trust not in God's benevolence. Towards making my life more pleasurable. But a commitment and a trust to God's greater scheme. And God's greater plan. That's one of the main problems with the way our society and our world tries to handle anxiety, stress, sadness, affliction. Because we are a selfish society in every other way, we tend to look simply for relief for us. And that's understandable. When we're in pain, We want the pain to go away. But one of the ways that we manage when in pain, physical, spiritual, mental, is to look to something bigger than just ourselves. And as this psalmist shifts his focus from the personal to the collective, he begins to contemplate God's plans and the fact that God's plans and God's people are bigger than the individual. And what does this lead to? 
it leads towards praise. A psalm that begins with 11 verses of asking God to listen because this person is lonely and they're in pain and they're forgetting to eat and they can't sleep and they're derided and there's a lot of personal problems. What does it turn into? It turns into a wish, not just for relief, but for praise, for the praise of God. In verse 15, he says, nations will fear the name of the Lord and the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Again, the perspective of this psalmist is really uh, amazing because he wants God to hear him now. Obviously, his focus is on the here now. When you're suffering as much as this man is suffering, it's hard to look very far in the future. And yet he does. But what is he looking for? The day when all of his pain has gone away? No, he's looking to generations who have not even yet been born. Contemplating the fact that even they will praise the Lord. Verse 21, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. How many times do you see someone who's really suffering how many times when you and I are really suffering do we ultimately turn to praise, to worship? Who does it remind you of? Reminds me of Job. Lost all of his wealth, lost all of his belongings, lost all of his children. And we're told that he tore his clothes and he fell down to the ground and he worshipped. Even when it seemed in his mind that God had taken everything away. He believed that God was worthy of his devotion and his praise. So many people, and I hope this is never us, but many people feel that God is only worthy of praise. So long as he gives what we want. But that's not true. Even when everything seems to be going against us. Even when it feels. This isn't the case. But when it feels like God himself is against us. God deserves our praise. And when we make that shift in thinking. From. God is some magical being to give me relief in what I want. To God is God. And whatever I endure. And whatever he frees me from or does not free me from. He deserves everything I have. He deserves my praise. My thanks. My devotion. My worship. Now I realize. This hasn't really answered a lot of questions so far, has it? How do I make the pain go away? How do I make the stress go away? The psalmist isn't getting anywhere close to just making things go away, is he? But he's thinking through the situation rightly. And that's our real goal. Is to do what's right and serve God's glory. Even in these times. Well, let's look at the last section. Again, a sudden shift. A sudden change. He goes back to the personal for just a moment. 
And again, this may seem to be the guilt. He, that is God, has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. So it would seem, if we read a little bit into this psalm, that the, the prayer may have some disease, or maybe his life is threatened by others. He believes that his days are going to be cut short. He's not going to get to live the average lifespan. He's going to die too young, essentially. Who hasn't worried about that? Who hasn't faced a sickness or uh, a wreck or some problem and they thought that they might die too early? I think everybody thinks they're about to die too early. But this is this man's thought. It's a legitimate thought. All of us deal with that. But again, what does this lead him to do? now? And here's the thing. It wasn't wrong, I don't think, for him to ask. But I also think in the grand scheme of this entire psalm, he's not asking for more days and more years just because he wants more days and years. What has he already established? His commitment to God's people. His commitment to Zion. His commitment to the praise of God. And he knows, as we're getting ready to see, that that is going to happen. God is going to be glorified. God is going to be praised. By generations that have not even been born yet. But he wants to be a part of it. As long as possible. Why do you want to stay here? Why do you want to be here? There's perfectly natural and, and understandable reasons why, one, we fear death. Even if we think we're safe eternally, we fear death. Death is the enemy. That's natural. We want to be here for loved ones. We want to see our kids grow up, our grandkids grow up. We want to experience life. God created life not so that we would throw it away, but so that we would use it. But if we're not careful, we can want to be here for some very selfish reasons. Because I want to get as much out of life as is pleasing to me. Because I want fulfillment. I want satisfaction for as long as possible. Or do I want as much opportunity as I can before I get to go enjoy heaven's reward? Not that I earn it. Not that I'm working for a bigger mansion but I want to be given time to work for God. I want to be given time to honor Him. I want to be given time to learn about Him, to come to know Him here before I enter into eternity. I think the psalmist does. Wouldn't it be easier if this is a faithful child of God to be done with the loneliness and the hunger and the sleeplessness and the pain and the, the, the burning and the bones. Wouldn't it be easier for him to just die and go to heaven? Why is he praying for extended days? Because he wants to continue to serve God. And honor God here. I think that's a, a noble desire. And I think that's a desire that we should make our own. But again, something amazing happens. As he makes his personal request, he begins thinking about God. 
as he begins thinking about his mortality, his thoughts go back to God. This is an impressive individual. Every time he thinks of self, he ultimately goes back to God. And as he thinks about God, he sees a very stark contrast. I'll just pick a number. Maybe this man's not even 35 yet. He's got double that time remaining if he lives an average life. Whether the man dies at 35, or whether the man dies at 70, or whether the man dies at 100, what is that in the scope of eternity? He begins to think about his frailness and compare that with God's strength. He thinks of his mortality and thinks of God's eternity. And it's almost amusing to him. Here he is asking for a few more days. When God's nature is so different. And he des the psalmist describes the world itself. And he says that the lifespan of the earth. Of the universe. Is to God. What changing a shirt is. To you and me. How important is the shirt you're wearing today? You'll go home, take it off, throw it in the dirty laundry and put something new on without much of a thought. And the psalmist says God is so big, so powerful, so infinite that the entire lifespan of our universe is like that to him. It's something that if he wants to, he can take and he can shrug off. And put on something new if he so desires. Now here's the key. To a selfish mind. That can be very dark and depressing. But to the mind of the one who recognizes. They are created in God's image for God's glory. It brings hope. Because there's nothing that we're going to do. About our frailty. And our mortality. Look at how far advanced we are with medicine, with science, with understanding. Are our lives all that much longer? You think we're ever going to get to the point that we live on average 150, 200 years? We won't. Even if we did, what would that be? But it's not on us. And we don't have to worry about that because we're not the ones coming up with the plans. We're not the ones solving the problems. God is. And he is eternal. And he has no end. And because of that, the psalmist finds hope in the future. Whether it's his future or not. He says, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Maybe he doesn't. Notice by the end of this, he recognizes his request may not be answered. And that's okay. Because the future will be established before God. And that's where he places his trust. Because of God's eternal nature, we have hope in something that is real. A hope in something bigger than ourselves. Now... I want very quickly to go to one more passage. Because this is quoted. Verses 25 through 27 are quoted in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 1. 
the Hebrew writer is making a case for the supremacy of Jesus. And he begins in verse 5 after he said that God in former times has spoken to the prophets, but now he's spoken to the Son. And in verse 5, he asks this question. He says, and to which of the angels? Because he's starting off showing that Jesus is greater than even the angels. And he says, to which of the angels has God said? And he quotes passage after passage after passage in the Old Testament. And then in verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 1, he says, and this is answering the question. So this is something that he says God is saying to Jesus. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. That's exactly what we just read in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Two amazing things about this in my mind. First of all, those words are about Jesus. The Hebrew writer, by inspiration, says that those inspired words, those prayers, were about Jesus. Meaning, Jesus is ascribed the very same nature as God. Why is that? Because Jesus is God. He is the Word of God incarnate. And if you're down, if you're depressed, if you're stressed, think about this. This God. The God who is so big that he can shrug off the existence of an entire universe like it was an old shirt. Became like you. He became a man. And he was afflicted. He experienced hardness. He experienced sadness. He experienced hardships. And afflictions. He bore our sorrows. He bore our shame. And this immortal God. Died on a cross. So that your future could be secure. Not so that you could be cured of cancer. Not so that you could have financial security. Not so that you could have an extra 10 to 15 years at the end of your life. So that you could have a real future. An eternal future. With him. That you could share. This eternity. If that doesn't help get us through a dark time. Then I'm afraid nothing will. But here's the other thing. That's amazing to me as I think about this. And that's how God uses us. Like I said, I believe that at a, at a place in time in the far ancient past, somebody prayed Psalm 102. And then they wrote it down. But they were praying about their condition. And when they prayed that, when they got to this part that we call verses 25 through 27, they were not speaking about Jesus of Nazareth in their mind. They were talking about God. They were ascribing praise to God. And yet this is how powerful God is. Unbeknownst, surely, to this individual, at least in its full glory and majesty, God was using them and their prayer in their darkest hour to describe his answer to their prayer. Jesus. 
I doubt they ever knew that fully. You know, you and I, I want to know how God's using me. I do. But I don't get to see all the results. All I can do is be faithful and loyal and serve him whatever it takes, serve him whatever the cost to plant and water, like Paul says to the Corinthians, and trust in God for the increase to his glory and for his kingdom. And know that God can use me. He can use you. Maybe in ways that we would never have dreamed about. I doubt a Jew in Babylonian captivity a few thousand years ago. Thought that someone half the world away 3,000 years later would be looking at his prayer. And finding solace in it. And using it. But God used him. And who knows how he can use us even in our anxiety, even in our depression, even in the hardships of life. He can use us when we turn to him. Well, we'll close the lesson there. In some ways, I hate to close the lesson because where were the answers? There weren't any, were there? How do I overcome depression with Psalm 102? That's not the point of Psalm 102. How do I make the stress go away from Psalm 102? That's not the point of Psalm 102. That's the point of this series. Our society has ways of dealing with pain. With sadness. Some good, some not so good. The real key is just faithfulness. And trusting in the Lord. Turn to God. This is what we've seen already. Turn to God, talk to God, trust in God, read God's word. Rely on your brethren, rely on the community, love the church like the psalmist loved Zion. Be faithful and have an eternal perspective. However difficult it is now, remember this is not you. God has a much bigger plan for your eternity if you'll be faithful to him. And so I hope that that gives you what you need, not to solve all your problems, but to manage them faithfully to the glory of our Heavenly Father and our Savior.